Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? Today, we're going to be diving into the evolutionary history of gymnosperms, and we're going to be doing it through the lens of genetics. But as you're going to hear, the kinds of conclusions you can make relies on more than just DNA. It involves fossil evidence, current evidence, actual field botany, those sorts of things. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Greg Stoll. He is an evolutionary plant biologist who is currently specializing on the evolutionary history of gymnosperms. And what you're going to hear is pretty remarkable, and it tells a much more interesting story than I ever imagined. So I don't want to keep you from it any longer. Let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Stoll. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Greg Stoll, it is so great to have you on the podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you today. So first, let's start out by introducing yourself. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Yeah, thanks for the introduction. It's awesome to be here. So yeah, my name is Greg, and I am a evolutionary plant biologist. I am broadly interested in the evolutionary history of plants. So when major groups originated, how and why they diversified and spread across the earth, how they have been kind of impacted by climate change and other geologic events. And, and I, I'm interested in it from different perspectives. And so I study the fossil record. So I'm kind of part paleobotanist, but then I also sequence DNA and use that to build phylogenetic trees showing how species are related and kind of try to integrate that to get a, you know, a nice picture of plant evolution in kind of a broad sense. Yeah, that's really awesome. And one of the main reasons I was excited to get you on is you go through your Google Scholar page when I found out about the work you've been doing. And I looked down the Google Scholar citation list and it was like fossil stuff, genetic stuff, evolutionary stuff, but always, you know, couched in this bigger idea of like biogeography changes, diversification and stuff. And I was like, wow, that is a an impressive combination of skill sets because, you know, generally speaking, you find people that kind of specialize in one of those fields. Um, but where did it all kind of begin for you? I mean, were you just a plant person that really liked the idea of studying this stuff? Or did it kind of come together through, you know, internships, volunteering, research opportunities, that sort of stuff? Um, I guess it came together as maybe an undergrad. And I mean, one reason that I appreciate your your podcast is that I feel like when I went into undergrad, I, I've always been interested in biology, but I knew very little about plants. And I took started taking, you know, plant, I took like a local, kind of like a local flora plant systematics class Mm. and kind of learned all the plants that grew around me. And it just really blew my mind. And I got really interested in plants and started doing some research projects and, and took, and and took like a class on paleobotany. And so, I don't know, I think I just started learning about plant diversity and just became really interested in plant diversity, kind of in a, kind of a total sense, you know, and you know, learning about the fossil record in geologic history, it just that really fascinated me thinking about plant evolution over broad time scales. And so, so that kind of took shape as like an undergrad. And then going into grad school, I thought that I wanted to kind of combine paleobotany, the fossil record with kind of DNA techniques to build, you know, phylogenies. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of where it started. And yeah, I, I got my PhD at the University of Florida and worked in the Soltis lab, which mostly does you know, phylogenetics type stuff. So sequencing DNA. And then my other advisor was Stephen Manchester, who's a paleobotanist. 
And so, yeah, so I was basically kind of in those two worlds and trying to bring them together. It's great you were able to find a way to combine them because, again, a lot of times you're a little bit forced, especially in grad school, to kind of just like jump into a lab and you kind of work on what that lab's bigger umbrella sort of topics are. But to be able to get that like co-advisorship going to really bring the strengths of both of these fields together because, you know, work like yours is proof that when you do, you get much deeper insights into these processes. It's really important to not only understand sort of what the genetic relationships are among these organisms, but to be able to kind of confirm that or just at least bolster those those conclusions with fossil evidence is really exciting. Yeah, no, totally. I agree. And that's, I guess that's kind of my general mentality with these things. And and I, I definitely was lucky. I mean, I that the Florida Museum has a really good plant kind of focus. There's a lot of people who do cool plant stuff and yeah. collaborate a lot. And so it was really good environment to kind of pursue multiple, these multiple areas. Yeah. And really, before we kind of jump into the thick of like what your actual research was and, and you've been doing over all these years is, was it a difficult thing, I think, just from like an execution standpoint to be able to develop skill sets that are required to do both of these with the kind of detail required to really make scientific conclusions and publish. Uh, it seems like you really have to spend a lot of time and, and I could see that kind of almost being like two full-time jobs combined <laughs> into one. Uh, you know, again, if you're curious about it, that's makes it easier to some extent, but it, it does seem like there was a lot of hurdles to overcome in, in this trajectory. Yeah, I think, yeah, to some extent. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, you kind of just do it. I guess. <laughs> you're here. You're alive. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I think it's it's just kind of like, at least for me, you know, if I'm interested in something that comes easy, you know, and so hmm. I was kind of interested in both things and kind of excited to learn both the kind of morphology, how to study morphology of modern and fossil plants. And then also just the phylogenetic stuff is really cool to me. So, yeah, I mean, it is tough because I mean, especially now the like computational skills are really important. Hmm. And going into grad school, I had none. <laughs> um, I didn't actually own a laptop until I went to grad oh, school. Nice. <laughs> I would just go type papers at the, the library and, uh, at my school. So, yeah. So, you know, that's maybe one has been one of the bigger hurdles is kind of learning those things. But I don't know. I mean, in grad school, you know, you have a lot of other grad students doing similar things that can help you. And, you know, it's kind of a community effort. So. Yeah, for sure. And that's that's great. I mean, you've definitely made uh, quite the early research career for yourself there. And so with that in mind, when you're looking for avenues within this field to start to tackle, I mean, one thing that people should really see clearly at this point, if they've been listening to all of the guests I've had on is there's a lot of different ways you could go with this. There's a lot of different plant families. And sometimes you got to kind of narrow in. Other times you can back up and say, let's do this floristically. So where did you start to make distinctions between specific species or families versus, you know, what kind of fossil evidence versus genetic evidence we have available to us to even start asking questions? Um, I think, you know, a good way to start is to, I mean, obviously just reading the literature and kind of seeing what people are, you know, studying now and kind of identifying gaps that way. But also just like when you go to grad school, you know, you you talk to your advisors a lot and other mm -hmm. people who are experts in the field and they kind of can help guide you as to like what are important gaps and knowledge, you know. But it's important to kind of pursue your own road and, and not just do what someone else tells you. So I think, yeah, I think just kind of reading a lot and just having a lot of curiosity um, kind of, leads you to, you know, interesting questions. 
Nice. And I think also looking at, I think reading, not just looking, reading the literature in one field. You know, I think mm. if you read, if you read uh, the phylogenomics literature, and then you also read the paleobotany literature, I feel like you might come up with ideas that connect things that wouldn't be possible if you were only focusing on one narrow thing. So I think reading broadly is important too. Right, right. And I mean, that goes for any field, even if you're not trying to double dip uh, yeah. <laughs> in grad yeah, school. Sure. I mean, that that really can give you new ideas, novel insights. And that's what's fun about it, too, is you start to connect dots that might not necessarily have been connected before or even been on a page allowing them to be connected before. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And so one of the groups that really is interesting through a lot of your uh, publications um, is one that I don't think about very often. In fact, this will be the first time I think I'm saying the family out loud, which is always kind of like a ooh. Um, I'm curious to see how you're going to pronounce it. <laughs> yeah, drum roll on that one. But what's cool is that, you know, you this is, seems if you're not in the regions where these grow or know much about them, they seem kind of esoteric, but then you start peeling away the layers and you're like, Oh, there's a lot of really cool biogeography stuff here and evolutionary questions. So I Icassanaceae is how I would. You got it. Oh yeah. (laughs) Awesome. So what got you interested or at least what turned you on to Icassanaceae, I guess, and, and really what is this family and why would it be something worth spending some time on other than that? Um, It's just cool. It's, it's just cool. Yeah. Uh, no. yes. um, <laughs> I know. So, yeah, I mean, when I went into grad school, I wanted to study a family that had a really good fossil record and that also needed work in terms of its like phylogeny. And so I cast an AC was just like a really good kind of really good choice because it, it has like a really crazy good fossil record. A lot of plant groups hmm. don't have good fossil records. A lot of angiosperm groups, especially tropical groups hmm. um, for various reasons. But I cast an AC really in the in like the early paleogene so you know 65 million years ago to 35 million years ago it was really broadly distributed around the, around the earth and it was really diverse in in Europe and North America hmm. um so places where it's not today and so it had this really rich and diverse fossil record but we didn't really know much about how the things in the family were related to each other or the like patterns of morphological evolution so we didn't really have the context for interpreting the fossil record. And so I was kind of motivated to make that context in terms of the phylogeny and the morphology so that we could interpret the fossil record and really understand in detail its evolutionary history. So like when it originated, how it diversified and spread around the earth. And, and so that's kind of why I was interested in it. And yeah, just because it's unique among tropical groups and having a good fossil record, you know, you could sort of view it as a model for understanding kind of the evolution and diversification of tropical plants because they do exhibit you know disjunction pad like a geographic patterns that's pretty common among tropical plants i mean it's basically pantropical so it grows Mm. across tropical regions today wow yeah and again it's it's kind of strange if you don't know them but i'm sure that once you dive in you see just the diversity of this group but you know you read about sort of its genetic history at least not before we even get to the fossil stuff and you realize that (laughs) it's undergone quite a big sort of ripping apart i guess you would say it used to be kind of this massive umbrella for a bunch of plants that are now in completely different families and so 
I get a lot of that is probably based in some morphological convergence or maybe some sort yeah. of close relations, but definitely different enough. I mean, even some of them got, I saw separated out into different orders. So that's a pretty big yeah. distinction taxonomically to be made there. But how do you start reconciling that with the fossil record? If it's already, you know, with, with living material, it can be kind of difficult uh, until yeah. you have that genetic information. It's tough. And I mean, I think you kind of need to tease it apart and understand what groups are related to each other and what groups aren't, and then look at the morphology of each of those in order to connect that to the fossils. Mm. And luckily, you know, once we've, we kind of kicked out all these things that didn't belong in the family, <laughs> I mean, most of the fossils are fruits and the fruit yeah. fossils are very distinctive and the, the fruit morphology of Icacinaceae is very distinctive. And so, you know, initially you might think there's a concern that's like, well, the family is a big mess. It's just the kind of a, a waste bin for all these things that are unrelated. So what does the fossil record even mean? But most of the fossils are actually, you know, these things that are still in the family and have very distinctive fruit morphology. And yeah, I mean, the reason it was sort of all put together is because, so actually vegetatively, they kind of, many of them are kind of very generic looking plants. <laughs> so they're just like evergreen woody trees that have alternate leaves, no stipules, uh, kind of very typical looking tropical eudicot leaves. And I think a lot of the morphological features that are shared among all the things that were put in Icacinaceae in the traditional sense, they're probably kind of like ancestral features of a larger clade mm. that were retained in these different things. And so that's why they were grouped. Okay. But, you know, but there are really, I mean, I don't want to say that <laughs> Icacinaceae isn't cool morphologically. Sure. It has a lot of, has a lot of really cool things. And there's some really oddball things in Icacinaceae today. And, and then a lot of Merlianas, which are really cool. And so, yeah. But on the fossil side of things, too, I mean, it's pretty remarkable that you're talking 65 million. So essentially, this is a family that was in place, established and spread around the globe a million years after the end of the Cretaceous. You know, I mean, that's that's amazing. That, <laughs> yeah. And it's it sounds like enough of the anatomy has been the same all of that time that you can actually draw connections between the fossils and what you see today. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I. I think, I mean, the family actually, I think is even older than that. Sure, so we yeah. actually have, we have fossil evidence of a particular clade within the family, a group within the family that is like a little bit after the end Cretaceous event. Wow. So basically that's within the family. And so the family as a whole, yeah. you know, I think has a, has a deeper history, but that, but that it's really after the Cretaceous that you see, you know, these things kind of proliferating. And I think that's probably the case. It's a case with, other things too, like um, some other tropical uh, vine groups, like uh, grapes and um, the moon, moon seed family, Menispermaceae. Um, so it's yeah, it's a it's kind of a yeah a broader pattern, I think. Yeah, and again, this combination of fossil evidence reconciling it with genetic evidence makes these sorts of investigations so much stronger. But for those that don't dabble in genetics, myself included, on a daily basis, especially not spending a lot of time in the literature, it is sort of curious to know how you can use modern day genetics to infer or at least bolster patterns that you see that are potentially tens of millions of years old. So how can you use DNA from these plants to start to look back in time? I mean, how does that work? So if you if you build a phylogeny based off of DNA... I mean, there's there's sort of been a you know this notion for a long time that there's the molecular clock. So DNA sort of 
evolves or mutates at a particular rate. And so if you look at the number of changes in a DNA sequence, that can give you a rough idea of when in time it diverged from another thing. But in reality, DNA does not evolve. It's not very, you know, genes rarely evolve in a clock-like fashion. Hmm. And so what you really need is fossils to kind of calibrate the clock. And so if you have a molecular phylogeny, you really need fossils to, be, to kind of anchor it in time. And from there, you can then kind of run analyses that kind of help you infer kind of how old particular areas of the phylogeny are, even if you don't have fossils because you have fossils in other areas. So it's sort of this exercise in sort of uh, kind of trying to reconcile the two. And it's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a very challenging thing. Yeah. Molecular, molecular dating is, is, it's a big part of the field of evolutionary biology, but you know, it's, it's, it's just a very difficult thing to do. And I think a lot of analyses just have a lot of error or just, you know, it's hard, it's hard to do precisely. Sure. Sure. But the cool thing is, is most scientists are very upfront about admitting that sort of stuff. I mean, everyone I read, at least, and I don't read that many, to be fair, is, you know, these are very conservative estimates. You know, they're not trying to overreach with their conclusions or what the data can give them. But it's really good to hear for a layperson that doesn't do this stuff like myself, is that this is always being checked against other data. This isn't something that you're just yeah. going, yeah, cool. Uh, our methods say it is. So therefore it is, it's a conservative estimates. You're checking it against other types of data and yeah. you're drawing conclusions carefully. Most of the time we hope uh, the, it's we not, hope. it's <laughs> not just this like, well, we're the scientists, so no one's going to challenge us on it. Yeah, no, I think that's generally true. And I think, you know, any given group of organisms will, someone will kind of publish a study on any, on some group and then a few years later, someone will publish another study on that same group. And so it's sort of, yeah, you check it against other data like fossil data and you continue to revisit that particular group with new new techniques, new data and see if, you know, the previous results hold up. That's that's the hope. So, yeah. <laughs> when when yeah. time and funding allows. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, you know, again, this is still kind of a. a sort of obscure group, especially if you don't live in the tropics, not to say these aren't important plants. There's a lot of awesomeness in this family, but you know, resolving a phylogeny is awesome. Understanding how that relates to the fossil record and sort of the timing of emergence and diversification is awesome. But then you get to go even farther with it and make some inferences about biogeography and habitat differences through time. And that's, what's also fascinating about your work is you're able to, you know, pick up these fossils from different areas of the world and say, well, if these were here, this means X, Y, and Z. So, you know, especially as it relates to like tropical forests and Antarctica, the antithesis really of tropical habitats today. And Icassinaceae has a role in kind of linking a lot of continents and habitats that are long gone in a lot of time, a, a lot of places. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and, and because, yeah, I mean, you can sort of, because the family today is restricted to tropical habitats, you can sort of infer that the ancestors represented the fossil record inhabited, you know, similar conditions. And so anywhere where you have like Cassinacy suggests that it might've been a tropical forest with maybe some exceptions, but, but yeah. And in terms of bio, biogeography, you know, I think Icassinaceae demonstrates that probably they were migrating across the North Atlantic land bridge, connecting Europe and North America back in the early Eocene. And then also kind of newer fossil evidence we have from Australia. And then also there's an unpublished thing that another group is working on from Southern South America. 
And so it seems like it was also, you were just talking about Antarctica. It was also probably mm. going across Antarctica. So it was really anywhere it could go. It was going back when the, the earth was a little bit warmer. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. For those that just heard Alaska and Europe, uh, you know, Eocene, <laughs> those were very different places, very, very warm <laughs> climates back then. So it's not saying, but the cool thing too, is having fossils, you get that morphological side of things to look at, you know, some aspect of the morphology where, as we've heard from other paleobotanists in the past can be very useful because the yeah. physical environment, the climate really dictates in a lot of ways the, the, the form and function of these organs like leaves, fruits, that sort of stuff. So there's other lines of evidence that maybe you don't personally work on, but can kind of yeah. help confirm that kind of conclusion. Definitely. And I think, you know, I, I wish we knew more about, um, for example, what disperses the fruits of modern day things. We really don't know because so many living plants, they have, there haven't been observations of what it just, you know, disperses the fruits, what animals do it. But if we knew more, we maybe could make more connections about coevolution with primates or, you know, other things in the past. So yeah, totally. There's a lot of connections you can make. And another thing is that there's a lot of, a lot of fossils that we know belong to the family, but they represent groups that are no longer here today. So they really highlight that probably in the past, like Cassinese was actually more diverse than it is today mm. and it's undergone considerable extinction. So. Right. Yeah. Because I mean, since the uh, end Cretaceous and even the Eocene, the earth has drastically changed, at least in its climate, even though the continents were largely getting into their current positions that we see them in, you know, the global cooling has had quite an effect on tropical floors at the very least in terms of restrictions. And I, I guess, you know, I've seen maps of, place to see an Amazon that show it was just little chunks of forest <laughs> instead of these this yeah. massive area. Yeah, definitely. So the, yeah, the tropics have, are very constricted compared to, you know, what they were in the past. And so you can imagine that a lot of things have gone extinct as a result. And, and you know, and when this, these things happen in a cyclic way that can, you know, have all sorts of different types of impacts. But yeah, the earth has changed a lot. So <laughs> Yeah, and we're speeding things up uh, like never before. <laughs> Go us. We're get, getting back to the ESC. Yeah. Um, I'm getting sweaty thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But from the genetic sort of you know evolution, diversification, and extinction standpoint, in recent years, you've been focusing a lot more attention on genomes to try to understand patterns like that. And just as you can kind of make inferences about timing of events when this group maybe branched off or originated or when some of the evolutionary stuff happened, you can also look at extinctions and diversifications and, and get even beyond that, it, it, not just a timeline for events, but really look at the underlying genetic reasons for those. So what kind of Definitely. what kind of pushed you down more in recent years, the, the sort of genomic side of this? Um, I, you know, I think with especially with this current study on gymnosperms, it's, it's just uh, in the field, it's sort of, there's a lot of focus on the role of different genomic processes in shaping broad scale patterns of plant evolution. And there's been a lot of focus on polyploidy mm. and its role in plant evolution. And so polyploidy is basically genome doubling. And it's a very common phenomenon in plants, especially in angiosperms, flowering plants and ferns. But it's generally been thought to be not very common in gymnosperms. And so part of the motivation of this recent study I did was kind of understanding the extent of polyploidy in gymnosperms. So is it really not that common or is it more common than we think? Hmm. And then also what are its evolutionary consequences? And, um, the, you know, gymnosperms are a really interesting group because there are 
just have a really deep evolutionary history, much longer than angiosperms. And it's also a very heterogeneous group. So there's a lot of hmm. kind of oddballs in, in the, in the gymnosperms that are, that are actually very distantly related. So, yeah, so that, that's kind of, you know, kind of understanding how these genomic processes influence evolution over broad timescales was kind of the motivation. It's interesting to hear that perspective on gymnosperms because, you know, despite the fact that flowering plants largely garnish most of our attention these days, there's still a lot of really important, I mean, not to say they're all important, of course, but, you know, in terms of like our focus, our attention, economic importance, especially, there's a lot of gymnosperms out there that really do play a major role in what we do as a society. And so it's strange to think that people have kind of just assumed that genome duplication wasn't really there and and that this was really fresh territory for investigation. Yeah. That, that to me is kind of already a big surprise. It is. Yeah, I, I agree. I, but I think, you know, part of it might be that I guess a lot of conifers are kind of the most kind of mm. currently economically important and ecologically important uh, gymnosperms. And they're well, in pines, at least there's, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of recent polyploidy. Mm. So I think, you know, maybe people studying pines sort of didn't see it a lot and sort of they make assumptions. Um, but it turns out there's a polyploidy event that is unique to the pine family. So it is a little surprising, but I think to some extent, you know, we have new, you know, access to data and techniques that allow us to infer historic polyploidy events better than we could in the past. And so wow. I think kind of, I think now is kind of the time to look at this, you know, and people have been doing this with angiosperms especially, but the time was right for this kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. That's cool though. And I got to admit, you know, when you say gymnosperm, even me, my brain defaults to conifers. And that's, that's a shame because there <laughs> are some really amazing gymnosperms out there. Uh, like you said, a lot of oddballs. I mean, you think of like Wilwichia yeah. or the Nitales, anything like a oh, Fedra yeah. even is, is just bonkers yeah. when you think like, oh, that's a gymnosperm. But, you know, totally. I mean, this is also a group that's had a ridiculous history on this planet and is a mere shadow of what it once was i mean they for definitely for so much of the botanical history of earth gymnosperms really were the dominant players definitely i mean seed plants and gymnosperms you know originated three you know over 350 million years ago i guess seed plants including angiosperms are about 360 million years old okay and then gymnosperms that group evolved kind of shortly thereafter and at that, when they first arose, they weren't necessarily the dominant group because there's still, you know, in the Carboniferous forest, there's all these, these lycopods, lycopod, mm -hmm. you know, tree-sized lycophytes and tree-sized horsetails and, you know, really diverse ferns. And so it wasn't until maybe 300 million years ago that gymnosperms really kind of became the more dominant plant group. Mm -hmm. And that really persisted until angiosperms took over. And even... I mean, angiosperms appeared in the early Cretaceous, but they didn't immediately take, you know, they, they diversified rapidly, but they weren't the most ecologically dominant thing right away. And hmm. it, I think it really wasn't, it was kind of a progressive thing that angiosperms kind of displaced gymnosperms. So as you said, they were, they were really the kind of major player for a long time and they have such a good, they have a really good fossil record. And yeah. so they are a very interesting group to study yeah. for various reasons. And from a genetic standpoint, the point you made about technology kind of finally being here, it's amazing to think that even when I started college, we probably could not have the resolution, or at least it would be a very few labs could have access to the kinds of funds and the kinds of machinery mm -hmm. needed to do this sort of stuff. But now it's kind of to the point where it's almost 
completely democratized. Most people can get their hands on the technology and make these sorts of investigations. But I'm curious about what you said about, uh, you know, from a polyploidy perspective, when this happened, detecting it, you know, it's not something that is always obvious when you look at the genome or, you know, is there some detective work sometimes that this happened a long time ago versus more recent, you know, relative when we say those terms? Yeah. Um, I mean, well, well, there actually is a very cheap way that you can figure out polyploid <laughs> if you if you do if you count the chromosomes. So mm. if if you like take a piece of growing root, there's like a you know ways that you can process it. So you can basically look look at look at the chromosomes under a microscope and just count wow. them. Okay. And it in polyploids, you you typically have like a larger number of chromosomes, and so that's actually one simple way that you can kind of detect recent polyploids. But you know, if you think about what you need to do to get growing root tip. I mean, that's not necessarily easy for trees. <laughs> I mean, it's easy. It's easy for like a small herb that you have growing in your greenhouse, but you know, so it's, you know, getting counts is not always trivial, but, but yeah, so that's, that's one way that you can kind of identify recent polyploids, but after polyploidy events, you often have a process where like over time, the thing will return to being a diploid. Oh, and so, sort of like a normal non-polyploid. And so basically you'll go from having a large number of chromosomes and slowly over time that might be reduced. And so if you do a chromosome count of a particular thing, it might have a normal number of chromosomes. And so you wouldn't know that there was a historic hmm. polyploidy event. And so basically what a lot of people are doing now is either sequencing the genome or sequencing RNA or transcriptomes. This is what I did for this study. And you can kind of use phylogenetic methods to infer previous duplication polyploidy events. And that basically involves identifying lots of gene duplications. And mm -hmm. so if you build a phylogeny from a particular gene family, you might see that there's basically like two gymnosperm groups kind of mirroring each other in that gene. And that basically represents a duplication of that gene. Oh, wow. And so if you see, if you look across many, many, many genes and you see that same hmm. duplication event, that can say that, okay, all gymnosperms, there's many genes that have a duplication event, like right before gymnosperms. So that suggests that there's a, a there was a polyploidy event that resulted in large scale gene duplication across gymnosperms, kind of like right before they diversified. <laughs> Does that generally make sense? Yeah. That's sort of a complex it, I mean, way to take a very, <laughs> I'm sure months, if not years of your life and summarize Sorry. it into a few sentences, but no, that does make sense. It's, it's detective work and it's really interesting yeah. detective work that's aided with these tools that are now becoming yeah. much more freely, not freely, but available. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the the, the, many of the tools are freely available, but the data can cost the money. To get. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of that, I mean, again, Gymnosperms is a much larger larger group than just conifers, not to downplay the importance of, mm -hmm. of conifers. And you looked at much more than just conifers here, including like ginkgos, cycads, yeah. some of the uh, stranger ones, like I said, natales, that sort of stuff. And it's really an all-encompassing look at kind of what this larger umbrella, uh, where does the branch, would you call it a clade or? Yeah. You mean for gymnosperms? Yeah. What, what is that branch? I mean, is it? Well, well, one thing about gymnosperms that's weird is that it's usually, it's like commonly, the term is commonly used to talk about all seed plants that are not flowering plants, right? including all the extinct fossil things. And so if you, in that sense, gymnosperms are not 
a group. They're not a clade. Okay. They're, they don't all descend from a single common ancestor right, right. to the exclusion of flowering plants. But if you look at all the, the living gymnosperms, those do form a clade. Okay. Whew. Yeah. I, I remember so hearing. You can, yeah. You take things for granted. And like, again, I'm yeah. <laughs> not in this field. I don't study evolutionary genetics or anything. I don't build phylogeny. So you go like, oh, yeah, no, gymnosperms and angiosperms are two different things. But I, I remember posting something about a ginkgo and someone goes, well, like, well, if it has fruit, isn't it technically? I was like, well, it's different developmental pathways, da 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 right, And this right. person said, yeah, but, you know, defining an entire branch of the tree of life by the absence of something kind of seems wrong. And I was like, I don't understand why that's wrong, but I also can't argue enough to understand if you're making a good point or just being, you know, a person on the Internet with opinions. <laughs> that's not a terrible point, though. Okay, good. About... <laughs> but, I mean, it's also you're right that it's not technically a fruit. So, I mean, you know, you're both, you know, you're right, but it was not a terrible point. <laughs> okay, good. No, I don't want to, I don't want to shame it. I, I like having good discussions. So when we can couch it yeah. in like a good scientific discussion, I don't want to like there you go. downplay that, but yeah. So, okay. This is a massive group of plants. A lot of them are not all that closely related. So where do yeah. you get where do you begin to compile the data? I mean, it's nice to be working with people that are working on massive phylogenetic yeah. analyses like that, but did you have to have all this stuff available to you to go clip leaves, or is this something where we're finally at the point where there's enough databases with this information available that you can begin to start utilizing it in this way? I think this was kind of a combination of both. Okay. And so, so on the one hand, we sequenced these transcriptomes. So basically, they kind of like expressed genes in the genome, the RNA, you go and you get a leaf and you can extract the RNA, which is basically all the expressed genes. And you can use that to build really good phylogenies. And so we sequenced RNA across representatives of all the different gymnosperm genera. And then there's also a, another big study recently, the 1KP project. Are you familiar with that? I've in, Where they, in passing, yes. They it was a It was a large project where they sequenced over a thousand transcriptomes across plants, green plants. And so that's a lot of publicly available data. So we use that. And then we also sequenced a bunch of new things. And that provided kind of a skeletal look at gymnosperm phylogeny and allowed us to kind of infer where these potential polyploidy events occurred. But that was very skeletal phylogeny. Mm. And so in addition to that, we downloaded all this sequence data from GenBank, where we were able to reconstruct a phylogeny for gymnosperms that included most of the living species. Wow. And so that we kind of used that to infer kind of like patterns of diversification and climatic evolution and other things. And then we kind of connected that to this more kind of skeletal phylogeny where we had information about gene duplications and where polyploidy events maybe occurred to kind of try to connect these different kind of patterns and understand what what factors might be driving the evolution of morphological features uh, or diversification or climatic evolution. So there's a lot. Yeah, we're tiny, trying to tidy cut a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, and again, but, you're summer. You summarize these things really well, which we appreciate. But also, I want to draw some attention to the amount of work that really is. That was a ton of effort, and I'm sure that took you a very long time just to not only get the data, clean it up, but then analyze it and start to look at it through the fossil yeah. record, through the paleoclimatic record, through the morphological lens. I mean, kudos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Thank you. I, I, I mean, I, I definitely should say this is a collaborative sure, effort. Sure. And so the, the transcriptome data set was, was generated in my, my supervisor, Yi Ting Shuang, at the Kunming Institute of Botany. They generated the transcriptome data set. Mm. And so I kind of, you know, was handed the transcriptome data and then kind of pulled in all these other data sets. So it was definitely, you know, it's effort, but no less of a monumental <laughs> effort, despite the amount of people. And of course, you know, shout out to all your co-authors. This is not happening yeah. in a vacuum. Um, but before we get into really the amazing things that you found, uh, why RNA? Because we talk about DNA analyses and I think people, you know, can readily get their heads wrapped around what DNA is and why it can yeah. be useful. But why were you all looking at RNA? Because basically... It's kind of like a good, simple way to get a lot of genes, sequence a lot of genes that you could use for phylogenetics. Because a lot of these, a lot of these things have really huge genomes. Mm. And so if you try to sequence the whole genome, that's just, it's so much work. Yeah. And so if you, with the RNA, if you just look at the expressed genes, it really reduces kind of the amount of genetic sequence that you're dealing with. Uh. And so you're able to sequence and kind of assemble all a bunch of genes more readily than you would if you were trying to sequence entire genomes or using other techniques. Um, and there are, there are many other reasons why people sequence RNA because you can look at gene expression. So you could sequence flower, you know, take a flower, extract the RNA and try to understand what particular genes are, are being expressed, you know, and potentially involved in the development of particular features. But yeah, so it is, it's kind of a, useful way to get a lot of data and you can also kind of use these tools to infer these ancient polyploidy events yeah uh (laughs) i guess i don't think a lot about how much effort it is to sequence a genome i know my friend rachel dr rachel moran did it for uh, a species of darter and it was massive news and it looked yeah you know i remember the years of effort watching her coding and all that stuff it's just uh, she made major inroads into the world of darters with one species so i can imagine that if you're looking across gymnosperms uh that would be difficult yeah. but it's cool again to think about just even high school biology like dna gives you rna which is the blueprint to make right. more dna so if the rna is in there it's what is being used to make this organism possible right <laughs> yeah definitely yeah Awesome. And, you know, it, it's becoming easier to sequence entire genomes, but it's still a whole lot of work. And yeah. more more and more gymnosperm genomes are being sequenced. And well, that's so, exciting. Yeah, it's cool. But, I mean, like, um, Wellwichia, Ginkgo, I think a, a member of Needham, another Nitalis thing. Um, and, you know, there's other conifers that have been sequenced in the past. But, you know, more and more this is being done. So that's a good thing. Nice. So with the question of running into all gymnosperms, looking at what their phylogenies are doing, how they've evolved and diversified over time, big picture, did you find that polyploidy is indeed more common than we once thought within this group? Yes, we, I think we did. We nice. did find that. And so <laughs> it, is, it is more common. Yeah. I mean, I think it's not, it's still not as common as in flowering plants or mm. ferns, but there are multiple ancient polyploidy events in gymnosperms that that seem to have been really evolutionarily important and that that's kind of what we found and then this complements some other studies that have recently shown that there's kind of more recent or young polyploids like in ephedra and also in in different members of the cypress family so i think it paints a picture of of polyploidy being more common than previously thought that's super exciting yeah it's cool and then another facet of our study was to understand like, is it evolutionary important? Right. Evolutionarily important in, in gymnosperms. 
And there's been a lot of attention to the question of whether polyploidy promotes diversification mm. in general in plans. And so that was one thing we looked at. And, and I, we found that it's not really connected. And this oh. is kind of what a lot of studies are showing that it's, it can be, but it's not sure. always. And I think, I think there's not, you know, I, at least my view at the moment is that there's not anything inherent about polyploidy that results in increased diversification. However, if polyploidy allows you to evolve really cool or, you know, important morphological features that allow you to, you know, exploit new habitats or things like that, then it can lead to diversification, but it's just not always going to happen. And so in general, it seems that in gymnosperms, at least polyploidy is not really connected to diversification, but it does seem that lineages that have polyploidy in their past have potentially a lot of uh, phenotypic or morphological innovation. Mm. And so we looked at the general connection between the number of gene duplications and the amount of novel features evolved in these different gymnosperm lineages. And it seemed pretty connect, pretty well connected. Huh. And this is not, this has kind of been um, kind of for a long time, polyploidy or, or gene duplication more broadly has been thought to be important in the evolution of novel features. Because if you take a gene and you duplicate it, one copy can kind of continue the original function, you know, produce the phenotype that it was already producing, but the other copy is kind of free to do other things potentially. <laughs> and so, so that's, you know, it's basically creates opportunity for novelty potentially. So we, we were kind of interested in kind of if this was kind of detectable at a broad scale where you have lineages that have lots of gene duplication. Do we also see many new features evolving in those? And it seems like that's the case. Huh. So it's kind of like saying it's not really all that important until it is kind of deal. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, it's not <laughs> present yeah. in every one of them, but when we do see neat stuff, it, it does help <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah. And that, yeah, that's, that's a good way to put it. And I think uh, that's kind of like other people have said similar things. in the past <laughs> about how probably It's like, you know, it's, it's a, it's not important until it, it is. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, that would be one hell of a seminar conclusion to make, but you know, it's cool too, to do this and to kind of blow up the, the, the viewpoint on polyploidy within the botanical world, because if you just look at it in the context of like angiosperms, you could see a situation where you're like, well, here's this group that rapidly diversified and has taken over the planet and is relatively new to the scene and they happen to do a lot of polyploidy. This is the most vital thing when it comes to plant evolution. But then when you kind of make your inferences yeah. that much broader and say, well, you know, here's another group with a ton of it and it's not always doing that. It gives you it's it's kind of like before we were only counting the hits and now you've got a bunch <laughs> of misses to add to that sort of thing. But not yeah. again, not downplaying the role that it's played, but it is also interesting. You know, when you say initially going into this, not to say we weren't aware of it to some extent, but it was like mostly known in angiosperms and ferns, which kind of sandwiched the gymnosperms in the timeline, not sort of like the hierarchical sense of, of evolution. Yeah, but, right. You know, okay, it's in these two groups. What, you know, there's this whole middle ground, so to speak, that is is still kind of up in the air. But this is why this study was so vitally important to our understanding, really, of evolution within the botanical world. Yeah, I hope I hope that's true. It, yeah, kind of helps fill in the broader picture. Yeah. And I agree that it's, you know, you shouldn't make general generalities about a particular phenomenon until you've kind of looked at it broadly. And so I think this this does kind of provide important kind of like context for understanding 
polypodium plants. Right. And so in the context of gymnosperms specifically, did you find some of the groups within this bigger umbrella have more instances of polyploidy or is it like some did it really early in in their evolutionary history and others are doing it more recently uh or you know you kind of hinted at it that some groups you see it being kind of more important than others but where where do you see are there patterns within gymnosperms i guess is what i'm trying to get at i I think you know i think in general my view of polyploidy with with all plant groups is that it's kind of like always happening (laughs) and so I think in gymnosperms that, you know, there are some events that happened in the deep past, but then I, there are ones that happened more recently. And then there's very recent polyploids that have been documented. So I think in a sort of temporal or geologic sense that it, you know, it's just kind of always happening. But I think there has been speculation about like for in angiosperms, for example, people have thought that there's a lot of polyploidy centered around the, the end Cretaceous mass extinction event. Mm. And I guess it's a, you know, there's a question of, is there more polyploidy or polyploids better at surviving Uh the sort of, you know, in the sort of wake of that ecological disaster? I mean, I think there, you know, I think that sort of that idea needs more study. But um, in general, I think that it's just kind of always happening. But possibly there could be factors that allow polyploids to be more successful in particular conditions, you know? Sure. I mean, especially if it's allowing sort of quote unquote experimentation with different traits, yeah, that sort of thing, or even just expansion and niche space in general. I mean, that's where you could potentially draw that connection between extinction events. It's like, well, maybe it was just a big filter and they're, they're just better adapted to a wider range of conditions. But um, from a Definitely. more basic standpoint on polyploidy, this is something that always blows my mind because, you know, my evolutionary uh, professor in, in grad school would always joke. He's like, you're not allowed to bring plant examples to the table because they can do whatever they want. You can get a new species overnight. But in your experience, and we can cut this from the record if you don't have or you feel uncomfortable trying to answer something this ridiculously generic, but why are so pla- why are plants so good at polyploidy, whereas a lot of other walks of life, like say vertebrates, are it's yeah. so lethal to them. Like if we had a polyploidy event in the embryo, it would it would not result in a living thing, but plants seem to do it constantly. Yeah. I, I don't know if in general, they just kind of have a more flexible developmental program, you know, because mm. they kind of like, you know, they, they're kind of modular and kind of can grow continuously. And so it, it seems like they're generally more flexible than animals that have like kind of a very fixed kind of definite developmental trajectory. So something like that could be part of it. And I think, you know, it also just might be more common because um, it's definitely connected with hybridization mm. um, and, and plants, you know, hybridize. It seems like they hybridize a little more readily than some other organisms. And so, but yeah, th- that's just, you know, <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Uh, <laughs> that's the best I got there. <laughs> it's just, yeah. I mean, I talk to a lot of people that kind of dabble in this world a lot and it is something that comes up time and time again, because it is, you know, whether it, when it is important, it is very important for evolution, yeah. as we kind of concluded. And it's just so strange. But it also just just goes to show you that I'm okay with anthropomorphizing plants to an extent because it helps make them relate to a broader audience. But to the extent that people want to treat them like there's something we can truly understand. I mean, what you just described in being modular and having a completely different developmental sort of process just goes to show you how truly different that that, yeah. that kingdom 
really is from anything animalistic. Yeah, definitely. And uh, there, there has, you know, there is polyploidy occasionally in animals, but it's just not as common. I mean, vertebrates, I think there's a polyploidy event, like kind of pretty far back in vertebrate evolution. And I think hmm. fi- in fish, it's some, a little bit more common. Okay. But it's definitely true that, yeah, it is much less common. And, and that's such a basic, interesting question. You know, why, why is it more common in plants? But you know, I don't know if there's yeah, the the team of researchers that get to the bottom of that one are going to have their careers pretty much set in stone for the rest of their life, <laughs> yeah, if it's even possible. But going back to gymnosperms, I mean, I really want to kind of tout their importance today because any gymnosperm you see on the landscape is not an echo of a past success and and largely reflective of a larger failure of gymnosperms. They are true evolutionary success stories, and some of them have undergone a lot of diversification more recently. It's not like there was a ton of them and now we're just seeing what's left over. And I think your work as well as the work of many others have kind of shown that within a few different groups, there's been a lot of diversification in relative recent history. Definitely. And I think, yeah, I think what we, what we found is that a lot of the diversification seems to have been happening like kind of more recently as the climate cooled. Um, And so a lot of, a lot of conifer groups, seem to, or at least some have seemed to kind of thrive after the Eocene as the earth became cooler. Um, And, you know, it sort of makes sense because, you know, gymnosperms seem kind of prone or capable of dealing with extremes, you Mm. know? And so as, as the weather got more extreme, um, I think it kind of created these habitats that are difficult for a lot of plants, but that gymnosperms can put up with. And so I think, yeah, I think the changing climate potentially created new opportunities for a lot of conifer groups to diversify. And so definitely they're still very relevant today. And that's good for people to hear. Uh, Again, I think angiosperms get a lot of the limelight. They get a lot of attention (laughs) for rapid diversification and kind of taking over the planet and pushing gymnosperms out. But, you know, again, evolution is not hierarchical. There's no trajectory yeah. plan a set thing and it's it's a matter of what's what what's going on what are the conditions and what aspects of morphology physiology ecology that sort of stuff best suits an organism to take advantage of that and things like the pines for instance seem to be really good at like you said taking advantage of more recent massive climatic changes yeah and who knows what will happen in another 100 million years you know <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe angiosperms will struggle and, you know, some gymnosperm lineage will will take over again. I don't, you know, you, you never know. <laughs> some ancient alien public or future alien <laughs> publication. It's like uh, the re-rise of gymnosperms and the uh, Anthropocene <laughs> extinction yeah. events, something like that. Sounds good. Yeah, no, no, no predictability, I guess, in that regard. But this is really interesting. And so, you know, big kind of picture here where do you see work like this kind of going obviously you probably generated even more questions in in sort of this investigation and what this paper culminated in and uh where yourself fits into that what do you see kind of being research interests moving into the future here um i think one thing that would be really neat that probably i wouldn't do but just trying to connect more polyploidy events and gene duplication events mm-hmm. with the evolution of particular um, morphologies. And so if you look at a lineage that has a lot of gene duplication and it has all these kind of, re- you know, newly evolved features on that lineage, trying to connect particular gene, gene duplications with particular phenotypes would be really cool. 
that's a lot of work. Um, it's it's kind of, and it kind of gets into kind of a field that's beyond me. Sure. But I think that would be. I think you know, hopefully, this study could kind of um, provide a framework or map for doing those types of things. Nice. Um, but then uh, something that I would maybe be more interested in pursuing is kind of touching on something we talked about earlier. Is just that um, when you have these ecological upheavals like the KPG and, and Cretaceous event where that kind of wipes out, you know, wipes out ecosystems and kind of creates vacancies or openings. Like how do, how do plants respond to that? And is polyploidy, if it's kind of constant through time, do those sort of situations allow polyploids to kind of persist more hmm. readily than they would kind of during normal times? And, and does that allow kind of experimentation? I think, you know, like you said, to, uh, you know, create crazy new features that normally kind of would not be able to take hold. Hmm. And so I think, I think that's kind of an interesting, uh, would be an interesting thing to pursue. Yeah, that's really exciting. And now that the resolution is only getting better, you've got a better understanding of an entire group that really hadn't gotten the attention it needed before. I mean, this is really where you can start chipping away at least. I mean, this is like you said, a lot of work and it's going to take a lot of collaboration, but it's really exciting to know that this is sort of the forefront of where we're at and to be able to, you know, with better accuracy, answer some of those questions. Yeah, definitely. And I think just to bring back fossils, I think, you know, kind of establishing like when and kind of where in the phylogeny of these genomic events happen. I think if with gymnosperms, if we can look more closely at the fossil record and kind of tie in kind of the diversity and morphologies that are present in the fossil record and connect those to these kind of known genomic events, mm. that that would be a really cool synthesis. And so I think in general, kind of taking this phylogenomic framework and bringing in more gymnosperm fossils, I think would be really neat too. Yeah, so. that's very exciting stuff. And so with that in mind, if people want to kind of keep track of your research interests, where your publications are going, or just find out more about your work in general, where do you recommend they go to keep a keep attention or eyes on what you're doing? Oh, God. I'm really, uh, I don't have a Twitter account or... Good for uh, you. Um, you know, you can email me. You can, you cool. can, uh, my, my Google Scholar profile is, you know, has all my latest publications. Uh, probably at some point I will make a website, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm bad at these uh, kind of social media means of... It's okay. Self-advertisement, but <laughs> privacy is so much better. <laughs> Trust me, <laughs> it's not bad. Yeah, but everything's on Google Scholar on the on my profile, and uh, you know, I'm very responsive to emails and you know that type of thing. Excellent. Well, Doctor Stahl, this has been really interesting, fascinating dive into some serious deep time and big questions in evolutionary biology. Congratulations on the recent publication to you and all of your co-authors and colleagues on this. This is a monumental effort and a really important step in our understanding, but thank you for taking the time to talk to us about it. And uh, we wish you all the best and keep it up. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was a really awesome talking with you. It's a lot of fun. And I love, I love your, your podcast and blog and what you're doing and all your shirts and stuff. I want to buy one. <laughs> I appreciate that. I got to get some more gymnosperm stuff up there. I uh, feel there you bad go. about that. <laughs> Ugh. But yeah, you thank go. you again. I really appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. All right, well, hang in there. Stay healthy and uh, happy botanizing, paleobotanizing, and genetic botanizing. Thank you very much. You too. Cheers. Take care of yourself. Yeah. Cheers. Bye. 
All right, that wraps up yet another fantastic conversation. I thank Dr. Stoll for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us and for providing all of these wonderful new insights into the world of gymnosperm evolutionary history. Of course, all of the links you will ever need for these episodes can be found in the show notes for each episode over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. You can also get links to our Patreon if you would like to support this show, as well as links to my book, merch, and a bunch of other stuff as well. So check that out. Once again, that's indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. But yeah, that's it for this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure you're subscribed so you can stay tuned to all of the wonderful conversations that are coming in the future. But until next week, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. But most importantly, be good to each other. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.